Um, I'd like to draw our attention to a single verse from our upcoming Wednesday night study, as we often do. It's Matthew 27, and we'll just read this little verse to kind of kick off our discussion. It's Matthew 27, verse 36. It says, and sitting down, they watched him there. Again, and sitting down, they watched him there. Who's sitting and who are they watching? Well, we're at what some people call the holy of holies of the whole Bible. How could you say that, Brett? Well, the whole Bible is a story of humanity. God created humanity, and in the first 10 seconds of humanity, we dropped the ball and sinned against God and were fallen and in a horribly messed up state. And the rest of the Bible is God's love for humanity and his plan to reconcile sinful, broken, doomed humanity, reconcile back to himself because he loves us so much. That's what the whole Bible's about. But the pinnacle of that work that God does to redeem all of humanity to himself was right here in Matthew chapter 27. That's why they call it the Holy of Holies of all the scripture because it's where Jesus Christ who's God in the flesh. God becomes a man, not just any man, but a servant, made himself of no reputation, and then was beaten up by man. He allowed himself to be tortured by man and crucified on a cross for the sins of the, the same people that's beating him. He willingly went to the cross. And so we have this chapter, this story in front of us that we need to sit down like these people. Sitting down, they watched him there. These are the same people that were casting lots for his clothing and, and mocking him and saying, if he saved others, let him save himself. And then eventually during the story, I think we missed this little verse where they all kind of got tired of playing games at the, at the foot of the cross and yelling up at him. So they just sit down and start watching him. And there's something about watching the cross and looking to the cross that really is a life-changing experience. And that's why I think we need to do that very thing today. Because the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and him crucified is life-changing. Back in the 18th century, if you were a little orphan boy in England, oftentimes they would very early take you in, to the shipyards and put you on a ship. And they would make you swab the deck and clean. And it was a brutal experience uh, for a boy that he'd have to just, uh, at a young age, it was, it was one such case where his name was John, this little boy, his mother died when he was seven. But his father was a, um, you know, a master of a ship in the Mediterranean trade routes. And, um, and so he just dumped his son off at some distant relatives for a few years. But when the little boy turned 11, the dad brought him out on the ship. And you're like, oh, take a son to work day. No, the dad brought him on to pretty much be nothing just short of slave labor on the ship. And this little boy um, did work, um, but he didn't like uh, the situation. So he decided to join the British Navy when he came to age. At a very young age, he joined the British Navy. But he was so undisciplined that he um, deserted the Navy eventually. And that, in those days, you didn't do that. Eventually, they caught up to him and arrested him. And they took him in the town square and beat him to almost death. That's what you did. If you deserted, deserted the British Navy, they would literally beat you in the town square just to be a lesson to everyone watching. Almost killed him. And then they lowered him to the lowest rank of all the British Navy and he had to start all over. And they put him back on a ship where eventually he deserted again and he was able to make his way 
to Africa. In his own words, he said, I'm going to Africa that I might sin my fill. He wanted to go and sin his fill. And he did soon sink to the depths of vice and sin and alcohol and, and just uh, really a place of depravity. So depraved, he had to support his sinful lifestyle there. So he got involved into the slave trade there in Afri Africa, which was a very sinister group, obviously. Um, and he, he finds himself working in the slave trade to satisfy his passions. And then he made some mistakes with that crew of the slave traders. So they demoted him and made him you know, just do some of the most menial tasks. And eventually they treated him like a dog. In fact, this poor guy, John, still a young man, um, they put this woman in charge. The slave trader uh, master um, had a harem of slaves of his own, a harem. And the woman who was in charge of the harem um, was in charge of this guy, John. And she would kick him in the head, beat him, and um, you know, uh, forced him to beg for food there in the dirt. It was like a, the lowest existence a person really can have. Eventually he escapes this slave trade harem thing that was the worst thing you can imagine. And he finds himself getting aboard another ship as just one of the sailors. And he's just trying to figure out what to do. And he starts getting back into his old life. Once back on the ship, he went to his old ways and started you know, partying and drinking and uh, still kind of a rabble rouser. And one day he got the entire crew drunk. It was his fault. He inspired everyone to be drunk. When the captain came out and saw the whole crew drunk and knew who started it, the captain walked up to John and punched him in the face so hard that John flipped over the rail of the ship and went overboard. And they yelled out, man, overboard. And the captain said, leave him. And just the ship kept going forward. Well, one of the guys on the ship felt bad for this guy who's gonna die in the ocean, not far off the coast of Scotland. This guy just kind of looks this way and that way and throws a rope with this big hook on it. He throws a rope out to him. Uh, as the ship's starting to move away. And the, the, the rope with the hook went right over John, but shockingly, the hook came so fast with the ship's force, it hooked him in the thigh uh, and went right through his femur, broke his femur and hooked him in the leg. And they literally pulled him up the ship with a hook in his leg. That's how they got him up back on the ship. They stuck him in a little room below deck. It was a little storage room or something. And not long after that, he was trying to heal. He couldn't walk. Um, and, and, and eventually this, this huge storm started to rage. Uh, it was a horrible storm, much bigger than this little ship could actually stand. And the ship was going down. So much water was filling the ship. They, you know, the men would do these manual pumps to try to get the water out of the ship. And they'd been pumping for nine hours and the, and the water just was filling the ship up. In fact, this little room that John was in, it filled with water up to his chest. He was there up to his chest in this little room below deck, um, just trying to survive. And at that, it was at that moment he heard somebody yell out, we're all gonna die. He heard that from above deck. Here he is with a broken leg. And a, in fact, the scar in his leg afterward, uh, they tell us that you could put a man's fist through the hole in the man's leg after, after it healed. So here's this guy, I mean, it's miserable. And for the first time in his life, he does something that he had never done. He cries out to God. 
It's an interesting cry. I'm not sure I understand what he meant, but here's what he said. He, he wrote in his journal what happened that day. He said, uh, he, he cries out and prayed. He, he said, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. That's what he said. And, and, and then he writes about how when he said, the Lord have mercy on us, it directly occurred to him that mercy was the last thing that he, that, that he deserved. He thought of all the people in the world, I'm the last guy that deserves mercy. And then he thought further still, concluding that my sins are too great, there's no way God will save me here. Well, interesting part of the story, the ship never sank. And it wasn't because of the ship was good or they bailed the water. The thing that saved them, the cargo that they were carrying actually was buoyant itself. The cargo they were carrying is what kept the ship afloat. And the ship survived. And once he saw that he had survived, he recognized that God answered his helpless, wretched cry and saved him. The ship did not sink that night, and it was a sincere, life-changing prayer when John cried out to have mercy on me. And he remembered that very day to the day of his death. In fact, from that day forward for the rest of his life, on that same day, each year, he would fast and pray um, on the anniversary of his salvation when he cried out for help for God. And um, his name was John Newton, English evangelical Anglican cleric, slavery abolitionist. John Newton emerged from that hold of that ship to become the chaplain of England's parliament and even preached before the King of England and was instrumental in the uh, abolition of slavery uh, in England. Um, John Newton. And he's famous for these things, but probably the most famous thing he's for is he wrote a hymn shortly after he was saved that you and I sing often. It's the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. To John Newton's ears, there was no sweeter sound in the entire world than God's saving grace. This is how sweet the sound. I, I, I wonder, how can a holy, righteous God treat us with such grace. You say, well, Brett, I'm not quite the wretch that John Newton was. Well, you know where that comes from? That comes from a culture that tells you from the time you're a little child, you're good enough, you're smart enough, you're a good person. Uh, the world pushes that whole thing. And sadly, not just the world, the church does too. The church puts it in different messages. You're enough. It's amazing to me how many pastors and churches go around saying, you're enough. That's so wrong. You're not enough. Left to yourself, you and I, me, I, we would end up in hell. You're not enough. And to teach us that we're enough is actually totally wrong. The Bible says all have sinned, everyone falls short. No one's righteous, no one seeks God. Not really, the Bible says. Uh, we all like to think of ourselves as righteous and holy. Um, but the Bible says, nope, it's not the way. We're all wretches, the Bible says. Um, and you know, you know who else was like this? Paul the Apostle in the Bible. Paul was a, a guy like John Newton. Uh, he was a persecutor of the Christian church, killing them and imprisoning the church. And he was a horrible guy. In fact, he even told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, I was injurious and I was a blasphemer and a persecutor, but I obtained mercy. 
Um, and the grace of God was sufficient for me. And that's why Paul the apostle, who was an intellectual giant, by the way, he was a, a guy trained by Gamaliel. That'd be sort of the Einstein of those days. His schoolmaster was the smartest guy on the planet. And Paul says, I, I, I'm a Pharisee of all Pharisees. And yet, I'm the chiefest of sinners. And that's why Paul, even though he was intellectual and knew all kinds of stuff, he, he as an older man said, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He knew a lot of stuff, but he said, oh, that's whatever. The only thing that really matters is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because he saved a wretch like me. Wise is the man, wise is the woman that comes to that understanding. Lord, my sin is wretched. I'm not as good as I think I am. In fact, for you to be saved, one of the requirements is to just acknowledge your own need. Um, it's called repentance, to, to change your mind and say, I am not enough. I am not good enough. Um, in fact, I'm bad enough to deserve death and hell according to the Bible. And that's why we need to say, Lord, you need to save a wretch like me. I love the word wretch. We need to bring that back. It's quite descriptive. Um, if you look it up in the Webster's, it gives you four definitions. One, an unfortunate or unhappy person. Two, a despicable or contemptible person. Three, a miserable person, one who is profoundly unhappy or in great misfortune for a base, despicable, or vile person. <laughs> That's quite a definition. Meanwhile, I feel like in the church of Jesus Christ, we, we start thinking more highly of ourselves than we are. Self-conceit is nothing but self-deceit. And, and, and we walk around, you know, praise the Lord, and we have our crosses and we wear crosses, which is great. I'm not against wearing crosses or having crosses and stuff. I think that's great. But, but I wonder if sometimes we diminish the power of the cross by just making it a, an implement of a symbol of our Christianity when really it's something we should step back and remember what actually happened there. Um, there there's a notion that comes from this misunderstanding that I find troubling, and that is from time to time you'll hear somebody, maybe you will hear this, if you go to Athey Creek long enough, somebody's gonna come to you and say, you know that church at Athey Creek? They teach a cheap grace. Um, there's, there, there's always, uh, there's been a trend of, of churches and pastors and Bible teachers, cheap grace, cheap grace. You, and what they're saying is, what, you think you can just be saved by confessing, speaking a word and saying a prayer and be, become a Christian and be saved? You think you can just do that? And the answer to that is, what, yes or no? Yes, read your Bible. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ that God raised him up from the dead, you will be saved. It's super clear in the Bible. How clear is it? Well, don't forget this one. Uh, how are you saved? By doing stuff? No, for by grace, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you're saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, a gift, a free gift, not of works, lest any man should boast. So these cheap grace people say, you gotta do more than just say a prayer. What do you think, you just say a prayer and be, become a Christian? The answer is yes, tell them that. And then they'll say, well, that's just cheap grace. And you guys just go on sinning and think you can just use the grace of God as a place to wipe your feet as you're walking through life. Well, that's not what we say. We uh, were saved by grace through faith. And then Paul said, should we continue sinning and let grace abound? God forbid. No, of course not. But not sinning and becoming a better person is not what saves you. Yeah, Brett, but... 
James says in James 2, 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. So, you're, so they make this false dilemma. Are you saved by faith and God's grace or by works? Either or. That's a false dilemma. Elementary logic uh, will show you that if you think about it for more than 10 seconds. It's not faith or works. It's not even, this is where a lot of people get tripped up. It's not even faith and works that saves you. Some people will say that. You're not just saved by saying a prayer or confession. You gotta do and you gotta show. Uh, and that, that becomes a works-based salvation. Um, so Brett, does James disagree with Paul here? No, 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 no. It's not faith and works. It's not faith or works. It's faith that works. Once you're saved as a Christian by grace, one of the things that will happen if you're truly saved, if you've really confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart, you'll start to see good works. Oh, you're not gonna suddenly be Mother Teresa. Uh, we're a work in progress, man. We're, we, we're, we're a long way from perfection and we'll never really reach that until we get to heaven. But yes, you will see good works. You wanna know what a great example of this is? The story I just told you of John Newton. Question, was John Newton saved because he wrote one of the most amazing hymns in all the history of the world? He wrote the song Amazing Grace. Of course, that would save you from hell, right? Well, no, that's just a work. It was a good work. I'm so thankful that he did that good work. How was John Newton saved? He was saved by repenting as a sinner, saying, I am a sinner. And he, he knew he was such a bad sinner that he didn't deserve to be saved. Once he got to that point of repentance, he calls out to the Lord for help. And the Lord says, I can fix that. I can save you by my grace. So John Newton was saved, became a believer and a Christian headed for heaven by a simple faith and confession of his faith. Then because of that, he became the chaplain of the Parliament of England. Because of that, he preached to the King of England. Because of that, he wrote a hymn that was life-changing for so many. It's not faith and or works, it's faith that works. And when we try to add to the work of the cross, say, yeah, believe in the cross, but also, as soon as you say and, you're diminishing the power of the cross. The cross is mighty to save, even to the uttermost. This is important for us to understand. In fact, Hebrews 7.25, it says, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto, him, unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for him. What's the uttermost? The person that's the furthest out there, the most crazy John Newton kind of person who's been in the slave trade of all horrific things. Um, a guy who was living in sin and debauchery, the uttermost, he was out there. And you know what? There may be some of you here that are uttermost. One evangelist who was doing a inner city street evangelism and people were being saved um, out of literally people that lived in the gutter in the city there. And he changed it. He said, the Lord is able to save them to the guttermost. Out of the gutter, the Lord says, I can save you. And nothing we need to add to the cross to make it work. The cross was perfectly sufficient in and of itself. In fact, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 makes this clear. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
You see, those that understand the grace of God, there will be a change in their life. And they, as they're saved by grace, then they'll walk righteously and they'll hunger and thirst after righteousness and do things that are good works. But it's not faith and works that saves you is so important. You say, well, Brett, how is it then that uh, the Lord made it so easy? And by the way, this idea of cheap grace, that's an offensive term. It's kind of an oxymoron. Do you guys know what an oxymoron is? Brett, are you calling people names again? No, oxymoron is two words that really kind of almost contradict one another, like jumbo shrimp, or Microsoft works, or military intelligence, uh, or uh, <laughs> used to, anyway. Um, but cheap grace, are you kidding me? Cheap grace? Um, this is the mistake when somebody says, you guys teach a cheap grace. Um, hello, grace was free. It was given to you and me for free. That's, remember Ephesians? It's a gift from God. It was given to you for free. But what a horrible, abominable thing to call grace cheap. When it cost, it, it was the greatest cost in the history of all the cosmos. Do you understand that? Well, what did grace cost? It, it cost this. God becomes a man and lives among us and then sacrifices himself to brutal torture of humanity and goes to the cross and dies for the sins of the world so that he can be gracious. God just doesn't look at your wretchedness and say, wink, nudge, yeah, I know you're a little rascal, but oh well, I'll just, I'll just let it go this time. No, God is righteous and he demands righteousness. So there was a penalty that needed to be paid and God says, I will pay that price for you. So yes, we're saved by grace and it's free, but it did not come cheap. So when people say cheap grace, I hope you set them straight. You guys believe in a cheap grace. Oh, it was free, but it was not cheap. And I think the person that doesn't get that, maybe they haven't sat at the foot of, of the cross long enough to understand the cost. God becomes a man. And what did he go through? Well, let's, let's back up a little bit and, and remember here in this text, and in fact, turn the page backward to Matthew chapter 26. And in Matthew chapter 26, uh, we start to see God being beat up by humanity. Like this is such a profound thing to even think about it. God becomes a man, makes himself of no reputation, takes upon himself this form of a slave. And, and, and this, is, this is why we start to see this as the holy of holies of scripture as we look back. Look at verse 67 of chapter 26. It says, then did they spit in his face and buffeted him. Others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? You see, in another gospel it says, they blindfolded him and, and started punching him, saying, if you're really the Christ, you know, speak who, who hit you. And like I mentioned on Wednesday night, you know, I, I'm just glad Jesus was willing to go to the cross because he could have done so much in this story. I, I constantly think, well, he could have just said, oh, you want to know him? the one whose head is about to explode? Three, two, one. And the body dropping. Any other, but anybody else have any questions? Like I would have done that. Yeah, Brett, because your announcement this, uh, I believe you. Um. <laughs> I know, but Jesus said, I'm not gonna, I'm so glad that Jesus was willing to be, you know, despised and rejected. In fact, Isaiah 53, three, the prophet said, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and even acquainted with grief. But Jesus kept, the Bible says, 
<clears throat> excuse me, he would set his face like flint to go to the cross to endure the shame and, the, and despise the shame. Um, look to, back to chapter 27. Flip forward to chapter 27 uh, there and look at verse 26. Chapter 27, verse 26. I'll talk about Barabbas on Wednesday night a little more and that whole story, but it says in verse 26, then released he Barabbas unto them and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. You know, the scourging part of this is, oh yeah, they whipped Jesus' back. But do you understand, you know, the scourging of the Roman times was so bad. Did you know there was a law that said if a person is scourged by the Romans, you couldn't crucify him. You can't scourge and crucify, either crucify or scourge, but it was illegal to do both. Well, then why did that happen to Jesus? Well, you have to understand the whole trial and execution of Jesus was illegal and wrong on every level. Do you understand that? So that's just more insanity. Some scholars believe Pontius, remember how Pontius Pilate seems sort of like, I, I find no fault in this guy. What are you guys talking about? And it seems like Pontius Pilate was really uh, hesitant to turn Jesus over to be crucified. Some argue that he was, had him scourged so that they could not legally crucify him. Uh, some argue that, and that's possible because it was illegal. But the scourging was horrible. It was a flagellum. It's also called a flagrum, depending on which era of Roman you're talking about. But um, there's writings about this, a lot of history. Uh, they also call this the cat of nine ta tails. Um, um, but uh, as it turns out, uh, there's a great book, by the way, uh, Josh McDowell wrote in 1981. So it's an older book, but uh, it's called Resurrection Factor. And he talks about a lot of amazing things about the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But one of the experts that he talks about is Dr. Pierre Barbet, a French surgeon who did some exhaustive medical, historical, archeological, experimental research and wrote extensively on the topic of the flagellum and the scourging of the Romans. Um, he writes about it, he says this, and I'll quote him. The prisoner was stripped of his clothing, his hands tied to a post above his head. The Roman legionnaire stepped forward with the flagrum or the flagellum in his hand, and this was a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small balls of lead attached near the ends of each. The heavy whip was brought down with full force again and again across the victim's shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the weighted thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continued, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and the veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from the vessels in the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead first produce a large deep bruise that then were broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back was hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area was an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it was determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner was near death, the, the, the beating would then finally stop. Now we know they would stop at 39 lashes. Um, it was interesting because a combination of Roman law and Jewish law, 
The Romans could only uh, scourge someone as long as, uh, by themselves, Romans, they could scourge for somebody as long as they wanted. But, but because the Jewish law, they made it to where you couldn't scourge someone to 40 lashes. Like 40 was the top number. So what they did is they made it 39 lashes, which they did whip Jesus, 39 lashes, the, the massive amount of whipping. Um, why not 40? Um, this was part of the law. If you gave someone 41 lashes, like you miscounted, then they would say, you're next. If you're the one who whipped, they would make him take off his shirt and clothes and whip him. So it was really, they were very uh, careful about carrying out the law. And so, so it was like a baker's dozen, only ap, uh, opposite, where they said, okay, we'll just do 39 to make sure that we don't go to 41. We'll just, in case somebody miscounted. That was the way they did it. And they whipped Jesus with 39 lashes and then would place the robe, it says here, it says scarlet in this passage, but the original text can be red or purple and other passages call it purple. So and the reason purple is because that was the color of royalty. They put this robe on the scourged back of Jesus to mock him um, as king of the Jews. Look at verse 29. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, <clears throat> they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and they uh, mocking, uh, mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit upon him, took the reed and smote him on the head. After that, they had mocked him. They took the robe from off of him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Um, in the Middle East, you know, we in Oregon here, we think of a crown of thorns like a blackberry bush or a rose bush maybe. But in the Middle East, in, in Jerusalem, the thorns are these, they're like eight penny nails. They're these really long and very stiff. There's no bend in them whatsoever. Um, these thorns are profoundly brutal. And they would slowly work their way into the skin and even into the skull. Um, it was like a horrifyingly painful thing. And again, all the while, Jesus willingly uh, choosing uh, to do this. Isn't it amazing? You know, we're so insignificant. It's, it's um, you know, we think of ourselves, oh, I'm amazing, I'm a good person, and people like me, and I'm significant, and I'm gonna leave a legacy and all this. But when you really think about it, we're nothing. <clears throat> you and I are just little specks. Uh, Brett, you're not a speck. I might be a speck, but you're not a speck. No, I mean in the context, uh, like here in the, the, the building here, this building is a speck. You and I are specks in a speck. Because if you Google Earth, you know, this building shows up, but as soon as you start zooming out and you look at the greater Westland, Tualatin, Wilsonville, uh, pretty soon, even this building is a tiny speck. But not only this building, but Oregon becomes a speck when you zoom out far enough. And, and, and you think, well, Oregon's big. Nope, it's just a speck because the Earth is a speck. Um, you can fit, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of Earths in our sun? Our Earth is a tiny speck compared to our sun. And our sun is a speck because our sun is one of the smaller stars in the solar system. Um, our sun is a speck. And then you look at our solar system, as it turns out our solar system is a speck in the Milky Way galaxy. We're just a tiny speck in the Milky Way. And guess what? The Milky Way galaxy is a speck. When you zoom out further, does this start to make you feel a little bit not so spectacular. I mean, we're just a speck, in a speck, on a speck, around a speck, covered by a speck. And, and yet, isn't it amazing that God says, I'm going to become a speck. I'm gonna become a man, a humble servant, slave man. I'm gonna be beaten and tortured for those specks. It's an amazing, amazing thing. 
Eventually, the Jews who didn't realize he was truly the Messiah, God in the flesh, the Jews will see him someday in the future in the second coming of Christ, and they'll say, where did you get those wounds, Zechariah 13, 6? And Jesus said, I received these wounds in the house of my friends. We're gonna see him as the lamb that had been slain for the sins of the world. It goes on in verse 33. There in verse 33, and when they were come to that place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of the skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted his garments among them. Upon my vesture did they cast lots. Um, here they are, you know, parting his garments, casting lots. And, and then verse um, 35 uh, through 43 uh, says, sitting down, they watched him there and set this over his head with this accusation writing, uh, this is G Jesus, King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him on the right hand and another on the left. Uh, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, saying, thou that destroyest the temple and build it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. This is humanity just being vile to God who came and died for the sins of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, um, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This uh, expert on Roman crucifixion, he goes on in that book, uh, about the resurrection with uh, Josh McDowell. He goes on and says about crucifixion, as the arms of the crucifixion victim fatigued, great waves of cramps swept over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps would come the inability to push himself upward, hanging by the arm of the pectoral muscles, the large muscles of the chest, they were paralyzed uh, and the intercostal muscles, the small muscles between the ribs would be unable to act or um, function. Air could be drawn into the lungs but could not easily be exhaled. Jesus fought to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, the carbon dioxide level increased in the lungs, the blood stream and the cramps partially subsided, but spasmodically he would be able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in tiny life-giving oxygen breaths. He would suffer for hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, and searing pain as the tissue would be torn from his lacerated back from his movement up and down against the rough timbers of the cross. So they'd, they'd have to sort of, just to get puffs of air, they'd have to stretch out on their legs on the nail and just try to reach because the muscles weren't able to breathe. Have you ever had a rib out of a spot and suddenly you're like, it doesn't feel great breathing? Well, can you imagine all those ribs being out and all your muscles sort of spasming around your ribs? That's the problem. And the Romans knew this. This was an art form for the Romans. But as long as the victim on the cross could lift himself on the nail on his feet and stretch, he could gasp for air and keep himself alive. 
But the death, that's how the Romans had it down to science. The end was rapidly approaching. The loss of tissue and fluids had reached a critical level. The compressed heart was struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood to the tissues, and the tortured lungs were making a frantic effort to inhale small gulfs of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues sent the flood of stimuli to the brain. The common method of ending a crucifixion was by curafracture. There's actually a name for this. The Romans had a thing they called curefaction. That is, the victim on the cross, they would just try to keep him alive, but when they decided, time's up, we need to kill them, they would do what they called curefaction. That is, breaking of the bones of the legs. This prevented the victim from pushing himself upward, and the tension could not be relieved from the muscles of the chest, and so rapid suffocation would then occur. The legs of the two thieves, remember, they were broken. When they said, time's up, they broke the thieves' legs, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that, This was unnecessary because he was already dead. Apparently though, to make doubly sure, the legionnaire drove his lance through the ribs. um, And and we know this because of some of the evidence here. Through the ribs, um, upward to the pericardium, into the heart. Uh, John 19.34 states about this. Immediately there came out of that wound um, blood and water. Thus there was an escape of watery fluid from the sack surrounding the heart and the blood of an interior of the heart. This rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that Jesus died not of the usual crucifixion death of suffocation, but rather heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid of the pericardium. Um, literally a burst heart uh, from the stress that the heart had, had, been, uh, had placed on it. So like forensically, a forensic medicine scientist could say, we know how Jesus died. Interesting that they didn't break his legs, fulfilling prophecy, um, Psalm 34, 20, he keepeth all his bones, but not one of them would be broken. That's interesting. Um, Now, some of you might be saying, okay, Brett, this is really gross. Can we move on now? Stop talking about all this stuff. I'm creeped out and grossed out. But do you understand, that's the problem with our society is we uh, don't really understand what God did for us. We're not willing to look, sit down and look at the cross and say, oh, we'll look at the shiny gold cross on the necklace or the shiny cross on the top of the church or, you know, but to really look at what happened on the cross, remembering the cross should be a a, a daily life changer for all of us. It was Peter, 1 Peter chapter two, verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. When you and I look at the cross, he bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin. When you're tempted to sin, one of the best things you can remember is the cross. Like Paul said, Christ and him crucified. If you're tempted to do some goofy sin that's gonna be against the Lord and you realize, man, this sin... This will only add to that, the work of the cross, sin upon sin, and, and what Jesus did for me, I don't wanna sin. 
because my sin put Christ on the cross. And thus we need to use the cross as a tool to understand it draws us to holiness. That's why Hebrews 12:2 says, looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice this, it says, consider him who endured. Think about this. From sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is the Bible's way of saying, uh, you think you're going through a tough day? Um, you think you're going through a hard life? You're not dying and bleeding on a cross. Consider him who endured the cross for you. Okay, Brad, we've heard this, let's move on. The cross and the blood, you Christians are all into blood and guts and stuff. Well, there's actually a verse about you too. What's that verse about you? <laughs> well, you can jot this down in your notes if you want, 1 Corinthians 1, 17. It says, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. When we sit at the cross, and if you're saying, wow, that's powerful what Jesus did for me, and you're thankful, and you're like John Newton, oh, amazing grace, as you consider the cross, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, the same to wretch like me. Oh, the cross is the most powerful thing we can think of. But if you're one of those people, yeah, whatever, the cross, you bloody Christians talking about the cross and stuff like that, can I just say, that's, the Bible says to you, that, that, that's because you're gonna perish. You're gonna perish in your sins. I hope that none of us get weary of hearing about the cross, even if it makes us a bit uncomfortable. Um, it's all about the cross. It's everything to those that are saved because Jesus did that. And that's why Paul the apostle, he did say, for I am determined to know not anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, um, Jesus, told us some, a lot of things to do and how to walk and stuff, but I'm always amazed at what we as people like to remember. Does anybody get tired of all the special days and months we have nowadays? We're celebrating Women Appreciation Month. Um, I get a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit like, yeah, whatever, when men are, winning, men are winning awards for Women of the Month in our culture now. I'm kinda like, yeah, I'm not sure that was really the intent. We're erasing women uh, now in our culture, and, and I see stupid humanity making special days for this, and we, we have days off for this and that and the other thing. You know, it's interesting, Jesus, I, there's some days I do love. I love Christmas, and I celebrate Christmas, and if you've been around Athey Creek, we, we celebrate Christmas as much as you know how possible. We love Christmas, but interesting, did you know Jesus didn't say, remember my birth? He never said that. Let's do this in remembrance of his birth. Nope, didn't say that. There is, however, one thing Jesus told us to remember, and that is the cross. Before he went to the cross, the night of his apprehension in the garden, the last supper, he said, here's the one thing, I want you to remember me. When you eat the bread and drink the cup, you're gonna remember what I did for you on the cross. Do this often in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Why should we do that? Because the power, the cross is powerful. 
And you and I need to tap into that often and remember what Jesus did. And, and there's so much, not only am I forgiven because of the cross, but when I remember what Jesus did for me on the cross, it makes me wanna do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. It starts to make me become a, sa a person saved by grace through faith who then starts to do good works because of the cross, what the cross did for me. And, and one of the things I think we mistakenly do is we diminish communion. We do it as a ritual or just go, oh yeah, communion time, we get the whole thing. And no, we need to sit and look and gaze upon the cross of Jesus Christ for it is the power that saves us. May the Lord give us ears to hear. If you're a person who's yet to be saved and you, maybe this is the first time you've really thought about the cross and its power, um, can, I, can I lovingly ask you, why would you reject the loving gift that God wants to give you of salvation? God loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son and died the excruciating death on the cross. And if you were the only person on the planet, I'm convinced that he would have died for you because he loved you that much. The question is, have you received it? How do you receive it? And we already talked about that. Romans 10, nine and 10, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart the Lord Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, and it says you will be saved. To believe, accept the work of the cross. You can do that right now, right here, just you and the Lord. Confess that to him. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sin, and now bless these, your people. As we go from this place, Lord, I pray that you be glorified in our lives. We wanna serve you now. Bless, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you and you're dismissed.